Welcome to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. Here we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement. Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I'm Colin Slade. And I'm Reed Gann, and we're your hosts for Commission Ed. Last week, Reed, we talked about a lot of the strategy and some of the physical stuff that is related to General Brown's Accelerate, Change, or Lose. And we covered his first two points in that paper, that air dominance is not an American birthright, and that good enough today will fail tomorrow. And this week, we want to get into his next point, his third point in the paper, which is that we must collaborate from within and throughout in order to achieve the success necessary on behalf of the American people. Yes, he actually introduced this early when he started with his second point, good enough today, we'll fail tomorrow, when he said we must adjust internal U.S. Air Force structures, service assigned roles, and mission. We must improve interoperability, data sharing with our closest allies and partners so that we can fly, fight, and win together. Colin, I don't know about you, but as soon as I start hearing things like addressing our service assigned roles and missions, I mean, that's like taking a shot directly at the core of who we are. And everyone in the Air Force should get a little bit nervous when that starts happening. Happy, excited, hopeful, but also nervous. Oh, yeah, because that means change is coming, right? But like capital C change, you right. know, like <laughs> big stuff. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, oh, we're going to go from the airman battle uniform, the ABU to the OCP, which thank you for making that happen. Right. Um, but we're talking like who wears the uniform? I mean, really big conversations here. And not only who wears the uniform, but the things that they will be doing in uniform, yeah, and and how the actual Air Force itself is structured, you know, the hierarchy and everything that goes with it. But before he dives into that, General Brown says we must candidly assess ourselves and address our own internal impediments to that change. That's such an interesting phrase. There, internal impediments to change. I think it's interesting if you're looking outside in. But for those of us on the inside, all we see are internal impediments to change. Right. <laughs> so for those who may or may not have Colin, have you read uh, Catch-22? No, I have not. Okay. So you must. And I know you're a father of three boys and AFSC change, all that. I know you're a little busy. However, it's a really good book, especially because of the author's just incredible ability to highlight some of the just insane things that happen inside the great bureaucracy that is the Department of Defense. And my favorite part about all of this is we do it to ourselves. There isn't some external organization that's mandating this. This is just something we chose to do. So yeah, I am believing his words right here. I experience this on the daily. But at the same time, Reed, yes, we have chosen to do it to ourselves, but that also provides us the latitude and the ability to change it, to fix exactly. it. Exactly. Yep. 100%. We own it. Very good. So let's get into some specifics about these different internal impediments. What is it that General Brown is talking about? What are some of the things, both within the Air Force structure, some of those service assigned roles and missions, some of the, the other things that we're looking at or that he's looking at that have to change in order for us to continue towards this process of accelerating our change or, and if we don't, risk losing? Yeah, we'll probably want to look at it from two different microscopes, if you will, the macro, the very big top level, you know, the whole service, and then at a more intimate level at the micro level. So Colin, why don't you start off and, and lead us at that macro level? What does the Air Force look like? How is it organized? Yeah, so this is 
really interesting thing to consider the way that you take an, an armed service such as the Air Force and then break it up into smaller and smaller chunks down to the individual squadron and flight in order to carry out these different missions that the Air Force is responsible for. So to begin with, the there is the Department of the Air Force, right, which currently includes two services, the Air Force and the Space Force. We have one service secretary, the Honorable Secretary Barrett, who is ultimately responsible for everything that the Department of the Air Force does. And then General Brown is her service chief. He's the chief of staff of the Air Force. And then General Raymond is the chief of space operations for the Space Force. Now, the Space Force is still very small. We're not going to address very much to it. But know that because it broke off from the Air Force at the end of 2019, it still carries a very Air Force-y type structure and culture, though we will discuss in, here in a little bit that it's already making some pretty significant changes. So let's talk about the Air Force. It is broken up into nine different major commands or MAGCOMs. Seven of those major commands are based on capability. Think mobility, we have Air Mobility Command. Think Combat Air Force, we have Air Combat Command. We have the need to acquire new material, new stuff, and that would be Air Force Materiel Command. And then the two geography-based commands, we've got United States Air Forces in Europe and then Pacific Air Forces. And, and this says nothing about the Air Force's responsibility towards the combatant commands or the strategic commands that are joint units with our sister services. Yeah. Anybody confused yet? No, Colin, you did, you did a really good job of breaking that down. But as we get going, just see how quickly this snowballs. So we've got 18 numbered air forces. And those are composed of about 150 or so wings. And we're not really counting the guard and reserve wings. Uh, they're in there. They're essential. Some of these guard and reserve units hold some of the only capability we have in certain areas. You know, I'm thinking specifically like the B2. You know, that's a guard reserve unit out in Whiteman. And then you've got your direct reporting units, flights and other elements, and geographically separated units, detachments, et cetera, scattered throughout the winds. That's a lot of stuff, Colin. That is a lot of lines on a very big line chart to break out who you are and where you fit in the whole thing. So let's give an example of how this works. So I'm in the OSP flight in the 70th OSS, which Interestingly enough, it does not have a group between us and the wing. We're actually above the line, which is a whole... What? Yeah, it's a whole nother conversation. We don't even follow our own rules. We're like the English language. You know, we set all these <laughs> rules and then we just do whatever we want. So the 70th OSS, which is part of the 70th ISR wing, which is part of 16th Air Force, which is part of Air Combat Command, which then goes under Headquarters Air Force and, and on up we go up the chain. So that's where that's my place in the world, Colin. Yeah. I'll do a similar example. This is not my current unit, the 8th Space Warning Squadron, but back when I was at Joint Base Andrews, I was part of the 11th Civil Engineer Squadron, which was part of the 11th Mission Support Group and the 11th Wing. Sounds pretty normal, right? But the 11th Wing is the only wing within what you might call a major command, but not really. It's more of a, a direct reporting unit, the Air Force District of Washington, which has a two-star who reports directly to the, the chief of staff, does not have a, a three or a four-star in between the two-star and the chief of staff. So were you even in a numbered Air Force? No, we were not. See, I told you, it's like English. We do what we want. You know, we, we make it up as we go. Yeah, and then another thing, the 11th Civil Engineer Squadron had over 500 people in it. Yeah, so we should inaugurate our audience who may or may not know the typical sizes of these organizations so you, okay. they can just yep. see how absurd and ridiculous that is. So a flight, five to 50, anywhere in there? What do you think? Yeah, that's that sounds about normal, especially yeah. when you look at how the way things are organized 
at basic military training, which is probably the most standard way of doing things, right? Yeah. So 15 to 16 in a typical training flight, at least at OTS it was. And then a squadron is composed of usually multiple flights. So anywhere from 100 to 250 seems to be swinging at the high end in a normal squadron, but also pretty typical. If you were to say, okay, yeah, 220 person squadron. Yeah, that all makes sense. And then groups are composed of multiple squadrons. Wings are, again, multiple groups. And then NAFs, you know, we start getting into three-star generals and tens of thousands of airmen. But the 70th ISR wing that I'm part of is 7,000 airmen, which is, it's a, that's a healthy wing. That's a pretty seriously sized wing. It's also very geographically dispersed. It's all over the planet. You know, so we're on the exceptional side, but 500 people in a squadron, that's obscene. Right. <laughs> so I think what we're trying to convey to our audience here, this is a lot of bureaucracy and that's really hard. It's re- it makes things really hard. Yeah, it adds unnecessary friction to the airmen's lives. And, and by the way, Reed, bureaucracy is expensive. It costs oh. a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of money in order to main these kinds of things. And General Brown says that future budget pressures are going to require some of the most difficult force structure decisions in generations because it is so expensive. Yeah. And for those of us who went through some of these reductions in force in the 2013 timeframe, it's a blood sport and it's uncomfortable. And I've gone through a reduction in force personally, right, for my career field when I was a brand new second lieutenant. And then again, survived the 2013, 2014 Hunger Hunger Games. And that was awful. And if he's thinking it's going to be worse than that, I mean, it shakes the entire service to the core. Every single person is worried about if they're going to have money to put food on the table. But at the same time, something's got to give. We can't keep doing this. And Colin, we do this to ourselves. Yeah. We did this. We did, and we're doing it. Yes, there have been some changes afoot, some recognition of the, the need to fix this, and things are getting better. But General Brown says, we cannot shy away from these decisions. We can't sit back and admire the problem. As you've said in our previous discussions, ooh, that's a big problem. We have to get after this. And I mentioned the Space Force. Let's talk about them directly. The Space Force is already making these changes. And they're doing so quickly. It's already operational that they have eliminated groups altogether. They're just gone. They don't exist. They've eliminated numbered air forces. They don't exist. And so what you're left with is a major command followed by a wing, followed by a squadron. Now, in the Space Force, they're called different things. A major command is called a field command. A wing is called a delta. But the similarity in structure and the people that will be in charge of those different organizations are equivalent to what you would find in the Air Force. Yeah. And, you know, we hinted at this a little bit earlier, but sometimes even though we have these very canonical structures, right, squadron, group, wing, the size of these organizations is inconsistent, wildly inconsistent. You know, let's take my time at officer training school. The squadron I was in was about 30 people. That's really small. I mean, that's honestly flight size. It really is. The group, the whole group was 180. Now, you could argue, hey, as soon as you get the students there, then the numbers get big really quickly. And then each squadron becomes, you know, 280 people which, okay, I I can buy that actually a little bit. But still, the point remains, how do you make sense of all these different sizes? And how do they make sense? How are they equivalent? I got credit for being a group exec of 180 people. One of my closest friends in the Air Force was a group exec of 1,000 people. And his life was infinitely worse than mine. And not to mention the ROTC group exec thousands and thousands of people in that group. I was here and responsibility equivalent to that person. I had 180 people. You know, think about that. And how do we compare people? And we're going to make decisions on manning and promotion and and responsibilities based off of these things they've done. And so we got to right size these things as well. Yeah, exactly. And then not only the size of these different organizations, but what those different organizations are responsible for. You know, prior to now, 
much of these squadrons are focused on a specific task or a specific platform of air power. And General Brown says that we need to move away from organizing ourselves around a platform such as uh, F-16 or F-35 or B-2 or U-2 or something like that, right? Rather, we need to move away from this platform-centric organization and instead focus on capabilities that enable us to execute uh, the mission relative to what our adversaries are presenting to us. Yeah. And this comes into play with equipment and modernization as well. You know, he says that we're going to be facing incredibly difficult decisions when it comes to the stuff. He specifically says programs that once held promise but are no longer affordable or will not deliver needed capabilities on competition relevant timelines must be divested or terminated. You, you, yeah, you don't Ooh. read anytime a general officer says that we need to divest ourselves of programs. He's not talking about like Microsoft Excel, right? That's not what yeah. a program is. Yeah. Let, let's recall back to our acquisitions discussions, right? We're talking the A10, the that's, J-Stars. Yeah, that's a program. That's a platform. The RQ4. Yeah, these big legacy platforms he's talking about ending. Terminated is the word he used. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Just think about that. I mean, these are really hard conversations. We have to reform and reframe the way we're talking about this away from platforms and toward capabilities. To be fair though, Reed, people have been talking about getting rid of the A-10 for a long time, right? This is not a new thing. You know, almost as soon as the thing was created, there were people who were not fans of the A-10 who were trying to get rid of it in favor of other platforms. The discussion around the A-10 has been, I don't know, 50 years long, right? And we can't keep talking about it. We have to do something. We have to accelerate change toward the capability that the A-10 represents, not necessarily the platform. Yeah. We must design our capabilities and concepts to defeat our adversaries, exploit their vulnerabilities, and play to our strengths. So what are we talking about, Colin? If you were reading the tea leaves and listening to what we hear in our circles, what do you think? I think the A-10 is definitely on that chopping block. I think RQ4 is probably pretty short for this world, the Global Hawk. U2, although it pains my soul, is probably also short for this world. I think any one-trick pony, the time is probably coming pretty quickly. Yeah, I think that the B1, the Mighty Bone, is going to go. It's, again, a one-trick pony. It's also a beast to maintain. It's incredibly expensive. I think that some of our mobility missions are going to have to adapt. You know, the C5, as awesome as that is, again, it's a difficult aircraft to maintain. It's a difficult aircraft to operate. I think that there are going to have to be you know, some significant changes there. And this says nothing about some other platforms or programs relative to infrastructure or personnel. I mean, we already hinted at it that there will likely be some reductions in force. The actual structure of the Air Force itself is going to likely have to change. Groups are going to be gone. I can't see a, a future of the Air Force where we are flexible and adaptable, where groups still remain part of the picture. Jenner Brown says in the paper that we need to eliminate unnecessary bureaucracy and redundancies and repurpose manpower to emergent and under-resourced requirements. Yeah, I'm totally with you. I, it feels like those are on the chopping block. I know they've already tried some things by eliminating groups at some locations. I haven't seen the results of those studies, but I'm with you. I mean, and some of these institutions are as old as the Air Force, and it's going to take a mentality of change, the ability to accept these new things and move out. And that's a good transition toward the next thing that you really wanted to highlight here. And that's to talk about the people and the way that humans are organized and broken out in the U.S. Air Force. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to discuss the platforms and the organization of the Air Force. It's a totally other thing to talk about the actual people who fill those different positions, right? So this information is from the end of October, 2020. 
and this doesn't take into account guard and reserve, but total active duty numbers is just shy of 330,000 members, 265,000 of which are enlisted and 64,000 officers. Now within the officer category, we have just over 12,000 pilots, 3,000 combat systems officers, and 1,300 air battle managers in the grade of lieutenant colonel and below. So that doesn't include colonels, general officers, those who are filling those higher levels of uh, the Air Force hierarchy. Yeah, because basically once you get 06 and up, you're not that thing anymore. Yep. And those rated officers, the pilots, CISOs, ABMs, they represent about 27% of the officer corps. Okay. So almost a third. Yeah. Okay. And then non-rated line officers, there's about 26,000 of them in the Air Force in the grade of lieutenant colonel and below, and that represents just over 40% of the officer corps. And how those different officers are broken up is that there are about 120 different AFSCs in nine different categories, which we have covered previously. But just as a quick reminder, AFSC signifiers one through seven are based on capability. And then category eight and nine signifier special duties or reporting functions. So Reed, why does this matter? We share this because there's roughly... 40% of officers, non-rated line officers, and then all of the medical and non-line officers who have little to no experience or understanding of the family business, which is flying in operations. And then those rated officers, the 26% who are pilots, CISOs, and ABMs, they are so busy that they have little time to understand what the rest of the Air Force is doing. And we see this play out in a microcosm known as the Company Grade Officers Council or the CGOC. I don't know if you've ever participated in that. Maybe you've been too busy as well. But my experience with the CGOC was that it was full of non-rated officers, non-rated line officers. And we were always looking at each other wondering, hey, where are the pilots? How come they're not here participating in this discussion, in this networking not because they're not good people or that they don't want to participate. They don't have the time. They're too busy practicing for the game, which is flying. Yeah, I was in the CGOC when I was in in acquisitions. As soon as I moved over to ops, I didn't have time. Yeah, and that's my point. It's that the officers that are involved in operations, and I'll say maintenance too, because they play hand in hand with ops, They just don't have the time for them to see what the rest of the Air Force is doing. And I'm not faulting them for that. It's just because of the way that things are structured. And so I think that we need to find a way that allows for our officers to better understand the entirety of the family business, which is not just sortie generation, but understanding all of the support structures and processes and logistics that go into flying the aircraft or some of the other capabilities that we're responsible for. And, and we've known about this problem for a long time. This is not a new thing. We call it stovepiping that our officers get stuck in their particular career field. You know, support officers only hang out with support officers. They don't ever talk with maintenance or ops only hangs out with ops. Acquisitions is off in their completely separate world where you know, they don't ever see other officers or even enlisted, right? And Or even aircraft <laughs> or the Air Force. Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, it's one of those reasons why like squadron officer school in residence has been historically viewed as so essential to the development of a CGO. Because it may be the first time that they sit around with a bunch of people from all over the Air Force. No joke. Pilots, intel, support, medical, everybody. You put them in a room and you make them meet each other. And you say, hey, you need to go to dinner together. And it ends up being an incredibly important developmental milestone for the majority of CGOs. Yeah. And that was the original intention of ASBC as well, where you and I met. Obviously, they've done away with that for various reasons. But the thing about ASBC and SOS, as well as some of the other professional military education opportunities for our officers, is that those are one-offs. 
that they happen at very specific points in time in the development of the Air Force officer. And it's a very short period of time. And once you leave SOS, what happens? You go right back to what you were doing exactly the same before. Yeah, you've developed some relationships and can now have a little bit more crosstalk. You have a little bit un better understanding of what the rest of the Air Force is doing. But the, the structure of the Air Force is such that the support officer works with support officers. The ops officer works with other ops officers, right? Yeah. And unless we think this is only a CGO problem, I just finished uh, IDE in correspondence, Air Command and Staff College. And universally from the reviews at the end of people say, yeah, it was the interactions with people from other career fields, learning from their perspectives. That was the most important part of that education level. And that's for O4s. So this is a perpetual issue. Yeah. And one that we've been aware of for a very long time. So rather than just sitting back and admiring the problem, Reed, let's get after a solution. I have some ideas about this uh, that I'd like to share and get your commentary. We've talked about Stanley McChrystal's team of teams before, where he breaks down his experience as the task force commander in charge of special operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. And you know, there's a lot that we could go into this book, but the one thing that I want to pull out uh, from it for this discussion is his ideas around collaboration, reminding our audience that the, this whole discussion is around collaboration. Jenner Brown says we must collaborate from within and throughout to succeed. And so General McChrystal talks about collaboration as being best accomplished through breaking down these silos, these different stovepipes, and allowing for the cross flow of information by pushing the decision authority further and further down. How do you do that? You have to get away from specialization, which is what our officers are currently doing, and helping them to become more like a coach. If you think about a sports team, the coach is not on the court in the game making decisions for his or her people in real time. Rather, the coach is responsible for providing a vision and outlining the, the principles and the rules of the game, helping their people to practice so that they can make their own decisions while they're in the game, right? And we do that a little bit in the Air Force. We don't micromanage every last single thing for our airmen, but General Crystal's point is that we need to do even less of the decision-making at the officer and the commander level. We need to push a lot more of that authority to the people who have the information and, and have the ability and the skills in real time. Reed, I can see you champing at the bit. Go ahead. Yeah, so I, what I was going to say is, yeah, we do micromanage airmen, 100%. I disagree with you there on that point. I was talking with an Army 04 yesterday who was despondent about how the Air Force is organized and how we function and how we're rank heavy and, and lots of things. I won't go into all of them, but one of the things we were talking about is the level of responsibility that each of the services have. And I just asked, I said, who drives a tank in the Army? You know, I was just curious because I, I didn't know. An E2, Colin, drives a tank. Now, <laughs> right? As airmen, we just have this revulsion. We're like, what? What? You mean it's um, not a senior NCO? <laughs> no. I was, what I was thinking is, you mean it's not an officer? Because that's how we would do it. And that's because of how the Air Force conducts the fight. We send our pilots, our O3s and O4s, and in some circumstances, our O5s, to go and do the fight. Yeah, so I, I know you have some more ideas you want to get to, and, and that's fine. Let's listen to those. And because some I'm totally on board with, some I'm not. You know, we'll save that. We'll save those juicy bits for a little bit. Okay. You know, Reed, you are allowed to disagree with me. It I just did. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Press. Okay, let's get into this. All so, right. in order to facilitate the officer functioning more like a coach, I think what needs to happen is that we get rid of a lot of the AFSCs that we currently have, 120 is too many. I think we need to simplify this a lot more in order to decrease the specialization of our officers 
and push a lot more of that decision-making authority down to the airmen, right? So what does that look like in reality, in practicality terms? I think that there should only be two AFSCs in ops. There should be the multi-domain operations officer and special tactics. And I know everybody's thinking, but what about pilots? What about Intel? What, what about these other operations officers? I think that those specializations should be turned into warrant officers because warrants are the specialization. They are the continuity. The Air Force got rid of their warrants a long time ago, but the Army and the Navy still benefit from them as pilots and as intel officers. And Reed, I know that you've got you know, some pretty strong opinions about that. So I'm going to turn it over to you and say, why not warrant officers in the Air Force? Because I don't want a baseball coach coaching a basketball team. So I'm using your team and coach analogy. Yes, we don't have the general manager of a baseball team out on the field making decisions. But what we do have is we have people who are incredibly familiar with the sport sitting as those coaches. And very often, they were former players. And what I'm concerned with in this structure that you're proposing is that we'll have leaders who don't know enough about what they're talking about, and it will lead to some issues. So I like the idea in general of essentially forcing down the decision-making because they don't know. I like that general concept. I'm just a little concerned that we may be throwing the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to how we got to where we are. I think we need to remember that some of the structures and organizations which we've been decrying for the last however long, right, were born out of blood and experience. So, you know, we earned these things. They are organized because we sent thousands of airmen to their death over bombing runs over Europe. We learned some stuff. And, and I don't want to totally dismiss that. But that's me. I'm the cautious, risk-averse type. But to get back to your question, because I think we need decision makers who have played the game. So I kind of like what Chief Wright used to say. He thinks that there's two tracks in the enlisted force, like the Marines do, right? Where they have the leadership track and then they have the expertise track. So, but that stays within the enlisted corps. So they have, you know, the sergeant major type who are going to be the leadership types within the Marines enlisted force. And then you have the gunny types and those are your real experts. So I think, Colin, I think the real point of difference between you and I on this subject is I think the question that we should be asking ourselves centers more around are officers leaders or are they technicians? I don't think, I think that we, you and I have a d disagreement here, but I'll let you keep talking. I think we agree that officers are leaders versus technicians. I think where we differ is in the matter, the degree to which they should have some expertise in, in a specific area. Yeah. And I recognize that there's a lot of information here that I don't have. I've never been in ops. And so for me to say, let's you know, greatly reduce the number of AFSCs in, within ops and move a lot of the technical responsibility to warrants, in a, a lot of ways, that's irresponsible of me to, to say just because I don't have the experience to back it up. However, what this does do is it gets people's attention. 100%. And I was just going to say, but maybe that's what we need. We, we need somebody, quote, from the outside to come in and say, let's blow things up for a minute and see how they shake out. You know, they're having this conversation right now. They've done some things, when, especially with pilots. You know, they've tried to create two tracks in the mobility crew fields where they've got, hey, you're just going to be an operator and that's all you're ever going to be. And then, hey, you have opportunities for command and leadership in the future. I haven't heard all the reports from that, but this idea of where is the line between I'm an expert in my field and I'm a leader, I think that's the heart of the debate. Because at some point, you got to be a leader. But how much expertise and knowledge do you need? If you are going to be an officer, yes, you need yes. to be a leader. Yeah. If you're yes. not going to be an officer, you could still be a leader, but your responsibility is different in that you have more focus 
on the technical aspects as opposed to the leadership and management side of things. Yes. And that's really the point of departure. And it's, man, the scope of where people fall on this is vast. I, I had a really good debate with a close flight commander friend at OTS. You know, he didn't think pilots should be leaders. And I had just come back from a, a combat deployment and I disagreed and I still feel this way. I want people making decision about air power to have touched it, to have done it, because they have experience that I simply cannot have. I do not know what it feels like to strap in, go into enemy territory, and feel like I'm going to get shot at and come out on the other side, and therefore have that informed place to make decisions about the employment of air power. To me, it's all academic. You know, I know the range of the sensors on the aircraft. I'm going to put it here, and then I'll get my picture, and I'll tell the general, here's where the bad guys are. You know, It's all academic for me. And so he and I disagreed on that point. But this is up and down the chain. Everywhere you find very different ideas about leader versus technician for officers. And I think that lies at the heart of us and our identity as airmen. And like you said, it comes from the way we were born. Pilots were officers. And I think those effects have trickled down. That's what I think we need to change. I think no skill, no capability should be locked in officer versus enlisted. I think we should have enlisted pilots. I simply cannot conceive of why we don't. I think we should have officer pilots who are, whoa, leading other pilots. But again, this is right me on the outside looking in. I don't understand why we don't do that. And I'd love to hear why it has to be an officer. And I, again, I disagree with this whole, they need to make life and death decisions and that lies with an officer. Baloney. We hand an 18-year-old a rifle and they make life and death decisions all the time. So maybe it's the scale, you know, because we can drop a bomb, which can kill a lot more people than a rifle can. But again, I'm not buying it. Tanks pretty lethal, can shoot a lot of stuff pretty far. So I think, you know, technology combined with changing attitudes with the entire force structure. And now I'm really ranting, but the whole thing, I think we really need to have this conversation and it needs to go faster. Yes, absolutely. There's a lot more to my proposed solution for officer AFSCs, but we can get into that another time. The bottom line is we need to look at doing things differently in order to facilitate greater collaboration between officers, between enlisted airmen, between the Air Force and, and other services and its allies. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay, so... I think we want to move here away from the macro level discussion around the way the Air Force is organized down to more of the individual level and how collaboration happens between individuals, between teams within the Air Force. Yeah, because this is something that impacts our daily life so, so much that it's really hard to talk about the things that are in the way of just basic collaboration. Yeah, we're talking about just basic functionality, such as being able to log onto a computer. Yeah. Just so you all know, the Internet Explorer product by Microsoft is the default browser for the Air Force. I, I mean, I, last I heard, they were trying to kill that anyway, because it's so outdated and old. Yeah, I mean, this is the year of 2020 where everything's messed up, right? But we've been using Internet Explorer for decades. I have a screenshot that I saved when I was using a newer browser, Chrome, and I tried to go to an Air Force website, and it gave me an error and said, wow, that's some ancient tech. And it wouldn't allow me to go to the Air Force website because it was so old and outdated that it's like, well, no, that's something's wrong here. Like, the, we are the United States Air Force. We used to be the instrument of technological change across the planet. We used to have the coolest, the bestest, the fastest, the mostest. And now we have websites that are so ancient that we can't go to them. We can't log in. I, another anecdote, right? So I had a cadet in one of my flights when I was an instructor at OTS who was like a strategic communications expert. And his job at his previous company before he you know, join the Air Force was essentially PowerPoint. He was, his job was to use that tool to communicate important things for the company. So if the CEO wants to give a brief to some investors or something like that, 
this was who he would turn to. He would turn to this office. They're experts in strategic communication, graphic design, all that kind of stuff. Say, make this look pretty, make this look awesome, you know, so I can give my presentation here. He tried to implement even like basic visual arts and graphic design and PowerPoint tools in his brief at OTS. And we had to tell him that he was going to fail if he used these things because it was so far outside of the quote normal or acceptable range. And he's, I'm literally a professional in briefing and just and doing this. And you're telling me I have to go back to fifth grade. And we're like, yeah, that's what we're telling you. Yep. And, and that is just a, a small taste of what's going on with the different applications that we're using. Thankfully, the Air Force does use the Microsoft Office suite. And there's a lot of capability there that's available to what we do that allows collaboration. But the Air Force leaves so much on the table with respect to these different applications because they refuse to update and turn on the, the full capability of all of these different platforms. Yeah. And it's tough. I mean, I come from the very dark world where everything is bad and everyone's out to get us. And so I appreciate profoundly the risks that are involved in completely opening up, but it doesn't make our lives any easier day to day. You know, like I see that. And I think the biggest fault there is that we're not communicating that effectively to everybody out there. If everyone fully appreciated the threats, I think it'd be easier to accept, oh, you know why we can't have all the nice things? It's because bad guy X, Y, or Z is taking advantage of it. But we can't always talk about that. So I, I see the other side, but man, it makes our lives miserable. I mean, a, a perfect antidote that helps to explain this. Now, this comes from the commercial world, you know, the private business, but it's similar or even worse in the Air Force that the average person the average employee spends 1.8 hours every single day searching and gathering information. And that's because it's all in different locations. Sometimes it's in a share drive. Sometimes it's on a SharePoint site. Sometimes it's on a website. Sometimes it's classified. In, and so it's on a completely different server altogether. You have to authenticate into and you cannot pull that information into an unclassed system. And so the amount of time that is wasted by our airmen just trying to find basic information, such as how do you become an officer, Reed? It's driving down the efficiency and the effectiveness of our people and making it that much harder for them to collaborate and operate as a team, such as General McChrystal was talking about in his book. Yeah. A quick anecdote from yesterday, Colin. I was asked to produce my, it's called Record of Performance or the Rope. And we'll take a real quick break here. You know, we honestly should do a whole toolbox episode on a rope. I'm shocked at how many people don't know what that is or how to build it. Basically, it is when we've talked about how your records go before a board, it is the entire record. It's every decoration, it's every performance report, it's every training report, it's everything that makes you on paper for the Air Force in a single document. And mine is right now about 30 pages. And every time I get an OPR, I update it. Every time I get a decoration, I update it. Every time something on my SURF, which I don't even know what that stands for, every time that updates, I have to update it. And I was there was a short-term tasker to get your rope to the commander. And I had just finished IDE. And I wanted that to be reflected because what they're going to do, they're going to take these things, they're going to sit down and they're going to rack and stack and give strats. And we've talked about the importance of that. Getting done with PME is a big deal. And so I wanted to make sure that was reflected. So Colin, it took me two hours, two hours to get this rope update done. And I was adding one page, two hours to add one page to a PDF. And if you sit down with a bunch of officers, you're like, hey, if you had to add one page to your rope, how long would that take you? They they go, yeah, a couple hours. Yeah, that, yeah. And then as you zoom out the 80,000 foot view, you're thinking, what in the good green earth are we doing? Are you kidding me that this is how long it takes? I could have done it a lot faster at home if I had access to the information, but I want to do home stuff at home. I don't want to do work stuff at home. So yeah, that's just one example from yesterday. And here's another example from the last couple of months as I've been transitioning from active duty into the Air Force Reserve. 
you know, we talked about in the episode on separating from the Air Force, all of the out-processing actions. No surprise here, there's also a bunch of in-processing actions that have to happen. And because my unit is in Colorado and I'm in Utah, which is normal in the reserves, by the way, like that's totally normal to live geographically separated in the reserves. Yeah, totally normal. But because I need to do all these in-processing actions and because I'm not going to the unit just yet because of COVID-19, that means I have to do all of that in-processing remotely which means that unless I want to drive the hour or so to an Air Force installation, I have to do it from here, from my personal computer, and I cannot get onto the AFNET from my computer. I cannot send or receive any official Air Force emails, which means that I cannot share any documents that have my personally identifying information, such as my social security number, through email. How many in-processing documents include the social security number, Reed? All of them. All of them. Literally every single one. And so I cannot properly in-process into the Air Force Reserve and do things such as get paid for my time on drill because I can't send a single email. I can't fill out a single document. And it's not because I can't. I absolutely can. The capability exists to solve all of these technological issues. We could do so much better, but the Air Force won't allow it. Yeah, we did this to ourselves. As I was sitting there looking at a scanner from, I don't know, 2000, scanning hard copies of this, because that was the only way I could do it. I printed out all 30 pages, put them in order, put them on the scanner, and as I was sitting there thinking about it, I'm like, we did this to ourselves. And I'll raise you one better, Colin. I'm at a different agency that is not part of the United States Air Force. And so I can't even use Teams because of two-factor authentication because my cell phone is in my car. You know, So people are like, why can't I see you on chat? I'm like, I'm not on the Air Force network. But you're in the Air Force. Yes. What about Teams? I can't log in. What do you mean you can't log in? Two-factor authentication. Well, what do you mean? My cell phone's in my car. Like These are all barriers we have done to ourselves. We do this to ourselves. Yes, some of it's necessary, and I know we've highlighted that. And I don't think for a minute cell phones should be allowed inside places where we're doing you know, national security type classified information. Some of the information that I see needs to stay classified, absolutely without question. We just need to find ways more quickly to adjust so that we can collaborate together because that's the issue. That's the whole point of all of this conversation today, Colin, is you and I, If we were active duty together and I needed CE help, it would probably take the rest of my afternoon to get in touch with you and set a meeting for a future discussion. We cannot move that slowly anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Technology is supposed to remove friction from people's lives, not add to it. And there's a great article on this that we'll share in the show notes that talks about the role of technology in the collaboration and the enablement of change within an organization. But it has to be something that allows people to interact as people and not bump up against wall after wall, barrier after barrier, and and keep them from the collaboration that needs to take place. And... That's on the individual level or within a team, but then the same needs to take place between the different teams, between the different units. Going back to General McChrystal's book, Team of Teams, the Air Force structure that we've been talking about this whole time needs to allow for the cross flow of information. There can't be this stovepiping, not just in the officers, not just in the organization around a platform, but we need to focus on the capabilities and that certain capabilities can only exist by allowing different teams to collaborate together. Yeah, and Colin, General Brown has an even bigger vision than that. We need to collaborate not just within the U.S. Air Force or within the services here in the United States, but we have to do it with all of our allies and all of our partners. And the amount of change required to do all of what we're talking about even within the Air Force, is staggering. But making that to a joint level and then to an international level, 
I mean, the Air Force in three years is going to be so different from the Air Force three years ago. It's going to be definitely one of those, you know, code brown, hold on to your butts moments because, man, it's going to be a bumpy ride. But that's okay, right? Because where does this get us? It gets us to a point where we are prepared for the fight that's coming with great power competition like we covered last week. Yeah. And I, I don't want to decry it, right? I don't want to lose. I hate losing, Colin. Right? I hate it. <laughs> uh, and, and that's with, you know, everything, not just the freedom of my nation. So I don't want to be dismissive of the stakes here. And we've talked about this before. This whole document is pretty serious. It is not rainbows and unicorns. It's pretty stark. And I think there's a reason for that. And we need to confront it. Yeah, the whole point here is that if we don't change and if we don't change faster, we are going to lose. And that's going to be terrible for all of us, not just in the Air Force, not just in the United States military, but for all American people. Yeah. So what are your thoughts? What are the things that you see that are major impediments to embracing the change we need? We don't want to turn it into a complete moaning session, but we do want to hear some of your ideas. You know, how can we change to get after some of these issues that General Brown's noted. We'd love to hear from you either in our social media, in the Heritage Room, or emailing us at airforceofficerpodcast at gmail.com. And the last thing, Colin, before we, we wrap it up from me, I, I do want to hearken back to what I was talking about earlier about a lot of the, the things that have gotten us where we are have been born out of tragedy, have been born out of the loss of blood and treasure. And I want to recognize that we are standing on the shoulders of those who came before. I don't want to dismiss their efforts or their work. And I don't think that's our intent, right? Our intent is simply pointing out the future and saying, we have got to move faster to get where we need to go. Yeah, we're standing at the same place as the airmen were in the Army Air Corps and Army Air Forces 70 years ago, 80 years ago, right? That they saw that there was a big problem, which was that if they stayed with the army, they were going to lose the next fight. And so they started having these discussions and saying, okay, you guys, we got to accelerate the pace of change here, or we're going to lose the Cold War, the, the battle against communism, against Russia, right? And because they embraced the change, which was a huge insurmountable obstacle at the time to break away from the army but they did it successfully and they set up the air force as we know it today thing is that was 80 years ago everything's different now we need to see what it's going to take for us to be ready for the next fight embrace that change and accelerate the, the pace of it taking place totally agree anything else before we wrap up this week colin No, I think that'll do it. Uh, We really appreciate our audience taking the time to listen to this. We appreciate you taking the time to share it with others so that they can be aware of what needs to happen as well. So thanks again for tuning in today and listening to this week's episode of Kushnet. Kushnet.